most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, April 27th, 2022, the 462nd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. So yesterday we were discussing Twitter and Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter and where that might be headed. And I mentioned that there were two freakouts currently happening right now. One kind of on the base level, the one we can see, the one where all of the Blue Anon journalists and celebrities and thought leaders inside the Twitter bubble were freaking out about free speech potentially returning to Twitter and what that might mean for them. They have to make it so toxic and dangerous for anyone to come back to Twitter. They need to let everybody know. That what it's going to be is this wave of bigotry and violent rhetoric and transphobia and homophobia and Islamophobia and misogyny. All of the terrible things that white men do. That's what's coming back to Twitter. We were heard that free speech actually means free speech for white supremacists. We were told by some crazy person on The View that. Twitter was predominantly white men. And so opening up this free speech would mean that it was a gift to white men so that they could continue torturing the people of the opposite sex or different races or different gender identities like we've always wanted to. There's nothing that gets white men going more than the ability to be publicly racist to people they don't know. I wake up each day and I'm like, is this my opportunity? I've been waiting all these many years. Everyone always telling me, hey, don't be racist. And I listened. I was like, hey, I don't think I am racist. I don't really have hate for anyone. I mean, there's some people I don't like very much, but they don't fit into a certain identity class. Some of them are white. Some of them are black. Some of them are other. Some of them are men. Some of them are women. Some of them are other. Some of them are straight. Some of them are gay. And who knows? Maybe there's another thing there, too. We're told there is. And so I'm going to take their word for it. And I never really check anyone's religious beliefs. And certainly don't hate them because of it. So I don't really worry too much about going out into the world and being hateful. But that's partly because I just never thought I would be allowed and encouraged by the world's richest man. But lo and behold, here we are. Now, according to the television, the world's richest man is going to finally give me the opportunity to go out and be the bigot I have always wanted to be. And I can't wait to try out my new skills. Maybe I'll be just as good as Joy Reid or the guy on MSNBC whose hair makes him look like the character Toad from Super Mario Brothers. Or maybe I could be like Ibram X. Kendi or Robin D'Angelo. They're the ones who write the books about how racism, if you're on the right side, is good. Now, I know that I'm a no-no person, so if I'm racist, that's bad. And in response to that, I'll just continue not being racist. Even once Elon Musk gives me the green light. 
So that's the base level freak out. What might happen if people are allowed to speak in a public forum again? I know that's nightmarish for people who don't actually have any ideas and simply only repeat the slogans and do so in an echo chamber, a little protective bubble where people who don't agree with them are simply excluded. That would scare me too if I was one of those people. But the major freak out, as I said, is much bigger because within Twitter, there is the facilitation of criminal activity and proof of criminal activity in direct messages and elsewhere within all the code, within all their data, just rampant, rampant proof of criminality. And the people who know that are freaking out on a higher level and they get to use all of the useful idiots on MSNBC and the blue and on blue checkmark people on Twitter, they get to use all of those lower level people to scare the society about Elon Musk and obscure the greater freak out that's going on. Now, I think that that greater freak out is kind of gaining some steam. And and there's a theory out there worth considering that this sale might never go through. Elon Musk might never actually run Twitter. Because, of course, agreeing to terms and getting the financing in place is not the same as actually taking over and beginning to make changes. You know, there has been some public suggestion that changes have already been made. All of a sudden, Donald Trump Jr.'s follower count jumped by 87,000 in one day when it was usually around four or 5,000 a day. And a bunch of prominent Blue Anons and other communists began losing a few thousand followers a day. And people were like, oh, they're cleaning out bots. That's why people's follower count is going down. Oh, they've unrestricted Don Jr.'s account. That's why his follower count is going up. Tucker Carlson was suddenly back on there. All of those things absolutely happened. I don't know if that's necessarily Elon Musk directing those changes. It could simply be people in the Twitter organization, trying to cover up certain things like shadow banning of particular people. Could be that. Could be a lot of things. It could also just be that so many celebrities said that they were leaving Twitter that maybe thousands of their followers actually listened to them and left Twitter, thereby reducing the follower counts of all the people those quitters followed. But all I'm saying is I don't think that stuff suggests that Elon Musk is manipulating the operations of Twitter at this point. Maybe he is, maybe I'm wrong, but that's my read. Now I mentioned all the criminality there. And so the theory kind of holds that Elon Musk has done this. This will now expose the inner workings of Twitter, the level of censorship, the ways they were manipulating things, and then some of the fraud and criminality and corruption. That's entirely possible. And at that point, the idea would be that Elon Musk throws his hands up, says there's way too much litigation against this company. There's way too much exposure for me to take over this company because all of these legal issues would have to be settled. Now that I know about all of these things, it gives me an entirely different outlook on what this company actually is. And he may well be finding that the company has misrepresented itself to its shareholders, to the SEC, and to the public. And so his offer might be well above and beyond what Twitter is actually worth. And you would think that a publicly traded company would have some sort of fraud liability for misrepresenting itself to shareholders, potential buyers, the public, whatever else. At that point, if that stuff is exposed and Elon pulls his bid, well, then Twitter just crashes and burns. They would have to get rid of the board. That seems pretty obvious. And Twitter might just be sold for scrap, made a public utility, and maybe in the same ways we were discussing yesterday, but perhaps reaching that endpoint in a different path. Steve Bannon went on an absolutely epic rant about 
Twitter and Elon Musk today on War Room. I think he actually took up two entire segments with it. It was like 20 plus minutes long and it's beautiful. I posted it in the info stream on Telegram, t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can find it right there from this morning. But his take seems very much in line with what I've been hearing from sources that I consider to be incredibly knowledgeable and trustworthy and maybe connected to the situation in some way around the edges. So at the very least, it's something worth watching. And there's a pretty good case to be made that Elon Musk is already aware of some of this. He had an exchange yesterday on Twitter with Mike Cernovich, who I consider mostly a clown. Not that he has nothing good to say, but he's one of those guys who's like sort of MAGA, but also wants to dog Donald Trump continuously. Like the dudes like Anzero Mali and Cernovich and I guess Elijah Schaefer. I saw him say something yesterday. These guys all think that Trump is like some sort of fool who was simply too dumb or too weak to get the job done. And he just wandered out of office without finishing the job and just handed the country over to the communists with no plan about what would happen. Now, hey, maybe they're exactly right. And maybe everything I've been reading and saying and thinking and doing for the last year and a half has been completely misguided and a total waste of time. Well, okay. Well, I'm not the one inside the Twitter bubble that actually spends a lot of my time trying to gain the attention of a mainstream audience by playing both sides slightly against one another. I've talked about this with Bill Maher before. You know, they take a position that's going to offend the left, the left of center, you know, because all these people are very concerned with the approval of the very, very reasonable centrists. That's what they want, because those reasonable centrists make up the intellectual class of Twitter blue anons, and they count themselves among these people. These are the people whose opinions they care about. They don't care about my opinion. They don't care about your opinion. They care about their follower count, and they care about the people that they see as the elites of the intellectual political class on Twitter. They still want to impress these people, so they still say things that make these people believe that they are connected at certain points, though not all of them. They want to have minor disagreements around the edges so that they can still seem very, very edgy. Ooh, Mike Cernovich is controversial. Ooh, he's stirring up controversy among the right, too, because he's telling them Trump is dumb, just like we all know. And these particular characters are just kind of funny because they always want to position themselves as the smartest and the toughest, no matter where they come down on an issue, right? So it's a little extra smart and a little extra tough to call Trump the dumb guy, to call Trump the weak guy. Well, dumb and weak in relation to what? Oh, in relation to Mike Cernovich, in relation to Anne Zero Molly, in relation to Bill Maher. They're the ones exploiting this sort of strategy to get more attention on themselves, grow their own audiences and increase their reputations on both sides. Well, that's pointless if you're not telling the truth. And obviously they're not telling the truth. They're not informed enough to actually tell the truth about these situations. And the funniest thing for Cernovich, by the way, is that he was actually in Amanda Milius's documentary, The Plot Against the President. So Mike Cernovich is fully aware that Donald Trump had a coup staged against him for five or six years and conducted his business in office with all of that as a backdrop and still somehow can reason it out to himself that Trump is either dumb or weak, knowing that Trump did all that. Now, that makes absolutely no sense to me. That is the sort of thing that you can only actually believe if you are still in some way addicted to the central narrative and spending all your time on Twitter is exactly how you say stay addicted to the central narrative. These people think that they are somehow moving and opening the Overton window, but they are not. They think that they're being controversial, but they're not. They're still on these platforms relatively uncensored because they're not threatening the central narrative. In fact, they are keeping their audiences connected to the central narrative through the things they say on that platform. 
If Twitter believes that Mike Cernovich is actually appealing to Trump supporters and then telling them that Trump isn't who they thought he is, he's not that great. He didn't really get that much done. He gave up on the country. He walked away. He lost the election, as many of these people still somehow moronically believe. Well, then Cernovich is actually doing the work of the global communist order for them. And I'm sure he doesn't think that. And I'm sure he would argue against it. And if he wants to, fine, I'm open to that argument. I'd listen to the guy. I don't find him particularly interesting in general, but I would hear him out. Hey, Mike Cernovich, tell me with some reasonable support what it is you think Donald Trump failed at. Now, these guys specifically know absolutely nothing about what happens outside the bubble. They only embrace that information once it breaks inside the bubble. And maybe there's some positive effect to what they do inside the bubble. I suppose that's possible. But I'm not really interested in that because all they're doing is pretending to be edgy, keeping both sides a little unsure about what he's doing. And the end result is that people stick with the central narrative. But I digress. So Cernovich yesterday tweeted, Twitter lawyer Jim Baker, when general counsel of the FBI, personally arranged a meeting between the FBI and Michael Sussman. In this meeting, Sussman presented fabricated evidence in the Alpha Bank matter. Elon Musk, this is who is inside Twitter. He facilitated fraud. And that's exactly correct. That is what the Durham investigation is finding and proving that is what Durham's filings have shown. This has been known for years. Jim Baker is now deputy general counsel at Twitter. The man who is directly involved in the attempted coup of 2016. And so Elon Musk responds, sounds pretty bad. As if this is the first he's hearing of it, the first he knows of it. And one would have to assume that's obviously not the case. But these public exchanges are a pretty good way for all of this to go wide and for Elon Musk's input on all of these things to actually get a lot of eyes on the claim that Cernovich made, for instance, which is indisputably true, but also something not a lot of people know about unless you are outside of the Twitter bubble and actually following the Durham case. And you actually know what happened in 2016 with the Russian collusion hoax. So I'm glad all this stuff is going wide. Cigar and Jetty tweeted yesterday, Vijaya Gotti, the top censorship advocate at Twitter, who famously gaslit the world on Joe Rogan's podcast and censored the Hunter Biden laptop story, is very upset about the Elon Musk takeover. And Elon responded, Suspending the Twitter account of a major news organization for publishing a truthful story was obviously incredibly inappropriate, and it probably went well beyond that, and hopefully we will know how far beyond that it went once we know exactly the mechanics of how that was done in terms of the internal Twitter communications and the communications between Twitter and various politicians and political operatives, people from the Biden campaign. And whatever else. Now, and Jetty was referring to an article that appeared yesterday in Politico. And this is referring to the all hands meeting that Twitter employees had after Elon Musk's agreement to purchase Twitter was announced. Now, Project Veritas put out a 45 minute audio that was leaked from that meeting yesterday. I have not gone through that. It is on my list of things to do after I finish the show today. And then hopefully tomorrow I will have some more to say about that. If there's, you know, obviously interesting stuff for me to talk about. But in the meantime, you can go to Project Veritas or James O'Keefe's channels on Telegram and check out that video for yourself. This is the article from Politico. Twitter's top lawyer reassures staff cries during meeting about Musk takeover. Monday was an emotional day at Twitter, even for its executives. 
Shortly after billionaire Elon Musk bought the powerful social media platform, top Twitter lawyer Vijaya Gotti called a virtual meeting with the policy and legal team she oversees to discuss what the new ownership could mean for them. Gotti cried during the meeting as she expressed concerns about how the company could change, according to three people familiar with the meeting. She acknowledged that there are significant uncertainties about what the company will look like under Musk's leadership. And I am not the only one, obviously, who finds it a bit disconcerting that this very powerful, strong, brave woman in a position of authority is crying at her company's meetings because her company just made the single greatest financial deal it ever could have made for their shareholders. But hey, what do I know? I'm not a fourth wave feminist, so there's not a way that I can make sense of how someone crying in public is actually a sign of strength. And they don't need it to be a sign of strength, of course, because showing strength is actually not how you gain credit in our society at this point. Showing your victimhood is how you gain credit. She actually just really feels and really means she is emoting in accordance with the danger that Elon Musk poses. Therefore, what she's doing is actually really important. She is speaking a truth that connects with other people who are constantly imagining themselves as victims. And that is even more powerful than standing up and actually leading people. Leading people into their own self-victimization is the strongest thing you can do in America in 2022. So Vijaya Gotti should actually be roundly applauded by everyone who even lays eyes on this story. Twitter spokesperson Trenton Kennedy said Gaddy became emotional when discussing her team's impact and the pride she feels in them. Sources confirm that she spoke at length about how she is proud of the work her team has done and offered employees encouragement, urging them to keep striving to do good work at the company. Well, I guess once you repeat it twice, how proud she is of them, it must be true. And the crying is added encouragement. I see that all of you are feeling this as deeply as I am. And I share your impression of the imminent danger that Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter poses not only to all of us, but to our society, nay, to the future of our democracy, to the future of Western civilization to the future of the entire world. If this goes through, well, everybody's in danger from free speech. Gotti, who has worked at Twitter since 2011, is the key executive charged with overseeing Twitter's trust and safety, legal and public policy functions. She is seen internally as Twitter's moral authority and the executive tasked with handling sensitive issues like harassment and dangerous speech. And it's kind of funny how they write these articles and they don't even give a nod to how Orwellian it is what they're doing. They just use the term dangerous speech as if everybody knows that's something that exists. Dangerous speech. It's just normal within their pathetic authoritarian false reality. Gotti played a leading role in negotiating the deal between Twitter and Musk, according to one person familiar with the dynamics. And of course she did. Someone has to be in the room representing the interests of the global communist order. And of course, it's their number one global communist. She has shepherded Twitter through some of its most contentious political battles, including the decisions to remove all political advertising and to boot former President Donald Trump from the platform in the wake of the January 6th attack on Capitol Hill, a position that has earned her devoted fans within Twitter, as well as a large contingent of right wing critics. And again, in a normal world, her censoring the sitting president of the United States would actually be seen as a national security threat and a grave violation of the First Amendment, but not in the Orwellian authoritarian false reality. There, she's a hero who is only seen otherwise by right-wing critics. But as news of Musk's official takeover broke, 
Policy and legal employees fretted at the meeting about what his leadership could mean for Twitter's carefully crafted online speech rules, including its policies against hate speech, misinformation, and even political advertising. I think everyone at Twitter, regardless of how they feel about the news, is feeling reflective and emotional, said one Twitter employee. We've gone through a lot in the past two years, and I think it's generally instigated a lot of reflection. I think this was more of an acknowledgement of the uncertainty everyone is feeling right now. And you can imagine it would be emotional. All of these Twitter employees are to some degree aware of their platform's malign influence in politics and culture. They are aware that their platform played a leading role in manipulating the public perception of Joe Biden before the stolen election, and they helped Joe Biden's election theft be upheld in the public mindset. They're probably also aware that on some level, their company has been involved in rampant criminality, and now they don't have the protections they thought they had. It's like a little drunk twerp at the bar, like when all his friends are around he can shoot his mouth off to whoever. But if all his friends go outside, suddenly he's the most mild-mannered person in the world. Things change once you don't have all that protection around. Gotti and Twitter did not immediately respond to a request for comment. Musk's acquisition, which places the world's richest man at the helm of one of its most influential social media networks, is one of the largest ever activist takeovers of a publicly traded company. Musk has called for Twitter to truly embrace free speech and has advocated for open sourcing Twitter's algorithm and removing all spam bots from the platform. Most significantly, Musk has signaled he supports vastly loosening the company's content moderation policies, suggesting it should only remove content if it is required by law. And I'm glad that Politico notes that because that's kind of getting lost in the shuffle. Twitter wants to be able to censor speech that does not violate any law. It only violates their rules and their rules are based on their agenda. And of course, we are told by the neoliberals, which is just basically every centrist now, the neocons and neoliberals have come together to form one great hulking mass of worldwide corruption and political incompetence. They all agree that the law is irrelevant. And because Twitter is a private company, they can do whatever they want. You use Twitter if you want, but you don't have a right to use Twitter. Twitter's allowed to exclude you if the people running Twitter want to. That's always been the excuse for why they're allowed to set their own terms for censorship. And we just can't argue. I mean, sure. In spirit, it is a direct violation of the First Amendment, and it is a violation of human rights if we want to go there. I'm not saying a legal violation. I'm saying in spirit, in principle, if we agree that the right to free thought and free speech and free assembly are actual human rights, which is why they were codified in the Bill of Rights in the U.S. Constitution, and that argument worked for them while they had Twitter under control. It doesn't work for them so well anymore. This would be a huge shift for the company, which has spent years creating elaborate guidelines to reduce the amount of vitriolic and threatening content on its platform, except that is not what it does. That's never been what it does. The amount of vitriol and threatening content on Twitter is unbelievable. The amount of vitriol coming from Blue Anon Twitter attacking everyone else on the platform is unbelievable. If you spend your day tweeting about how every white man, by virtue of his sex and skin color, is a racist and sexist oppressor, you are tweeting out vitriol constantly. And by the way, I think that everybody should stop using the term reverse racism. I understand that that means racism against white people and that that's a real thing, but it's not reverse racism. It's just racism. Saying that it's reverse racism kind of accepts the left's premise 
that only white people can be racist, but everybody can be racist and you don't need special names for it just because it's not white people who are being racist in some given example. And by the way, the idea that only white people can be racist is itself racist. It is also, it also essentially implies that on a very base level, genetic or otherwise, there is actually a difference between the races that white people have different capacities than black people or Asian people or Hispanic people or Native Americans or any other ethnicity. There's something special about white people, something different that allows them to be racist, whereas no one else can be racist because they just don't have it in them. It's not part of their genetic makeup. It's not part of their history. And despite the fact that that is provably not true because all races and ethnicities around the world do, in fact, have a history of racism in addition to a history of slavery. The people who propose this idea are the ones saying, but not meaning, that all people are actually created equally. People actually do have the capacity for good and evil. All of us. Racism is evil. There isn't a set of humans in the world that do not have the capacity for evil. Although if someone were to argue that children or potentially people with Down syndrome lack the capacity for evil, I would be like, okay, very interesting discussion. I would love to have it with you. Tell me what you know. But it certainly doesn't come down to race. That has always been the dumbest argument in the world. And anything that says that white people are the only ones with the capacity for racism automatically places white people at the top of a hierarchy, which is also racist. All of that is just the stupidest position to ever take. And it's one that our society kind of accepts on its face. Crazy to me. Gaddy herself has advocated strongly for ensuring that Twitter's policies protect its most vulnerable users while protecting free expression, a position that is at odds with Musk's. Now, Twitter does not do that. All right. The most vulnerable people on Twitter are the ones who can be censored and banned and not have any recourse. Jamila Jamil is not the most vulnerable on Twitter. She's a celebrity that talks about all sorts of things she knows nothing about. Getting blowback to that should be expected in a public forum. But of course, she's one of the vulnerable people because she's a woman and because she is Indian, I think. But they always have to obscure what their priorities are. Everything bad they want to do is justified morally in a given situation because they can invent and then exploit a victim class. That is always what they do. Everything terrible they do is always for the benefit of somebody else. Because they're not concerned with actually doing good things. They're concerned with showing the world that they are good people based on their virtue signaling. And that is how you become a good person when you live outside of a meritocracy. We used to actually have to do good things like treating people well or being honest or loyal or fair or forgiving. Now we only have to embody those characteristics publicly whenever we are called on to do so. And all of that is in support of the state. You support the state. Your popularity grows. Your position within the party of false decorum improves. This is the sort of thing that does not work in a meritocracy. And back to the article so we can wrap this up. I'm often inspired by the vigorous debates on controversial issues that occur on Twitter, but I've also been seriously troubled by the plight of some of our users who are completely overwhelmed by those who are trying to silence healthy discourse in the name of free expression, Gotti wrote in a 2015 Washington Post op-ed. At times, this takes the form of hateful speech in tweets directed at women or minority groups. At others, it takes the form of threats aimed to intimidate those who take a stand on issues. And by taking a stand, they mean, she means, 
reflecting the global communist agenda in what they're saying. There can be no debate on Democrat policies, no debate on hashtag me too, no debate on Black Lives Matter, because anything in opposition to the approved of position is intimidation against those who take a stand. They're not taking a stand. They are literally repeating the slogans of those in power. These people imagine that they are speaking truth to power because they are expressing viewpoints held by an actual minority, not a minority based on identity characteristics, but a small number of people. They're saying things that they know most people won't agree with because the things they're saying are absolutely insane, but they have the power system behind them to support them. They are not speaking truth to power. They are speaking power to the truth. But in the ideology that they ostensibly support, that would have it exactly backwards. So what they need to do is the old switcheroo and claim victimhood. We're not the people trying to silence discourse by actually censoring, banning, and shadow banning people. No, those are the people trying to silence the discourse by disagreeing with the approved position. Gaddy holds one of the most controversial positions at Twitter. Her teams decide how to moderate content. That's made her a target of right-wing criticism, particularly when Twitter blocked the distribution of a New York Post article about President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, in 2020. She faced a renewed wave of criticism after multiple reports confirmed she was behind the decision to ban Trump from Twitter. No matter what we do, we've been accused of bias, she told Bloomberg News in 2020. Leaving content up, taking content down, that's become pretty much background noise. You got that? People got really upset at the beginning, but Twitter just kept on going and eventually people stopped being upset because they felt they had no choice. And the communists won. And if you ever bring it up again, she's going to claim that she's been victimized by this situation again and again and again. Sure, some people are going to be upset when we take content down and some people are going to be upset when we leave other content up. It happens to be always the same people who are upset about it and those people always get their way. Well, to be fair, there's a chorus of people out there claiming that they leave content up, for instance, from the Ayatollah, or they leave up content that makes the intellectual argument for why pedophilia is not bad. But if you do any of that too much, you'll get banned. It's unclear so far what Musk's acquisition will mean for Twitter and for Gaddy's future with the company. Executives at an all hands on Monday demurred when employees asked about what Musk's leadership will mean for Twitter's policies. During her team meeting, Gotti fielded similar concerns, and several employees left the debrief with a renewed sense of loyalty to her. If you look up the word inspiring in the dictionary, you find a picture of at Vijaya, tweeted senior public policy associate Kennedy O'Brien. Grateful as ever for your leadership, Vijaya couldn't feel luckier, tweeted Camino Rojo, Twitter Spain's head of public policy, government and philanthropy. Oh, Twitter philanthropy, really? Many progressives have raised deep concerns regarding Musk's move to buy Twitter. The billionaire entrepreneur has, quote, used the platform to attack people, often launching childish broadsides against anyone he doesn't like or agree with, said Jessica Gonzalez, co-CEO of the progressive tech advocacy group Free Press. And he's regularly rallied a Twitter mob of loyal fans to follow his lead with more vicious threats and bullying. And Jessica Gonzalez was the author of that absolutely terrible piece for CNN Business that I went through yesterday. So Vijaya Gotti is a name to watch as this situation continues to develop. And I have a feeling she's going to have a lot more personal problems on the horizon. And those tears as covered in Politico seem like they are about the base level freak out, but I think they're really about the high level freak out. She's an extraordinarily well-paid and well-connected political donor to 
the Clintons and Obamas of this world. She has obviously tried to sway elections in the Democrats favor, and she has covered up rampant criminality for Twitter. All of this will eventually be out there. Her tears might be more for her own future than they are for protecting the marginalized from dangerous speech. Also in the world of collapsing legacy social media companies, Facebook's now parent company, Meta, is expected to post the slowest revenue growth since their IPO, according to the Wall Street Journal. So that's just something to keep in the back of your head. But I want to focus on a different problem for Facebook slash Meta. This is from the Daily Mail today. This is the headline. It's like pouring ink into a lake. It flows everywhere. Facebook doesn't know where users' data goes due to its open border system that could see it fail a tsunami of crackdowns by privacy regulators. Leaked document reveals. Thanks for the ridiculously long headline, Daily Mail. Leaked documents have revealed that brass at flailing social media giant Facebook have failed to keep track of its nearly 3 billion users' personal data as the Mark Zuckerberg-led company continues to face scrutiny from privacy regulators. In an internal document obtained by Motherboard, privacy engineers for the site pointed out flaws in the site's data management system, admitting they were at a loss as to where its user data goes. The leak was revealed after the company that changed its corporate name to Meta came under fire for collecting unwitting users' personal information for purposes including targeted advertising, a practice that is currently automated. Workers who wrote the directive pointed out. Staffers who penned the memo, which was sent within the company sometime last year, referred to the current system in place as one with open borders, one that does not allow for the careful management regulators across the board have been calling for. And I'm going to jump down just a bit. The engineers went on to admit that they are struggling to make sense and keep track of where it's 2.9 billion users data goes once it makes its way into Facebook's automated systems and called on management to change how the company deals with users data to prevent it from running into trouble with regulators. We do not have an adequate level of control and explainability over how our systems use data, and thus we can't confidently make controlled policy changes or external commitments such as we will not use X data for Y purpose, the document reads. And yet, this is exactly what regulators expect us to do, increasing our risk of mistakes and misrepresentation, and also violating your own terms of service, it might be worth adding. And when I hear stuff like this, I am reminded of that moment before I left Instagram after being banned from Instagram in 2020, when they put their new terms of service out there. If you continue using Instagram and Facebook after December 20th, 2020, you agreed to never participate in a class action lawsuit filed against Instagram and Facebook. But this whole thing feels to me very much the way that the quote unquote whistleblower Francis Hogan, that whole thing felt last year. It was clearly staged. They wanted to get public knowledge of this little problem they might have and divert people's attention to that. Frances Hogan came out with her little documents. She was a whistleblower. She went right to 60 minutes where all the real whistleblowers go. And she talked about how the platforms were able to influence the behavior and the mood and the emotions of its young users. And it was increasing depression in teenagers and suicide among teenage girls, etc. But all that information had been out there for years. And this article feels a little bit like a limited hangout, like they're trying to give you just a little bit of the information. You'll focus on that. And then you'll fall asleep to the rest of it. Yes, we know Facebook's user data. It just goes out in the middle of nowhere. And so, yeah, we're probably going to hear about how certain stolen user data has had this effect or that effect. But you knew that that was happening. Facebook is such a big company. They have so many users. There's no way they could have reasonably been expected to actually protect 
everyone's data the way they said they did. And you agreed to give them all your data anyway. So sorry, them's the breaks. Now, changing subjects without a segue. This is from NBC News and not just NBC News, but the great Ken Delanian. Now, Ken Delanian at NBC News is the one who wrote the article a couple weeks ago that I shared on the show about how U.S. intelligence agencies had been, quote unquote, declassifying intelligence that they would then make public. They would tell everybody about what Russia was going to do. But here's the thing. They were making up the intelligence the whole time because they thought it might stop Russia from advancing in certain directions. Remember that very legitimate story? Well, here's another. U.S. Intel helped Ukraine protect air defenses, shoot down Russian plane carrying hundreds of troops. So from the NBC News perspective, from Ken Delanian's perspective, and from the perspective of every child brain addicted to the central narrative, this is good news. Finally, the U.S. has done something legitimate to help Ukraine defeat those awful Russians. As Russia launched its invasion, the U.S. gave Ukrainian forces detailed intelligence about exactly when and where Russian missiles and bombs were intended to strike, prompting Ukraine to move air defenses and aircraft out of harm's way, current and former U.S. officials told NBC News. Why don't you name the officials? Don't they want to go on record? Isn't this a great triumph for the American military, for the American foreign policy, for the war effort in Ukraine that the United States is not involved in, but also sort of involved in? That near real-time intelligence sharing also paved the way for Ukraine to shoot down a Russian transport plane carrying hundreds of troops in the early days of the war, the officials say, helping repel a Russian assault on a key airport near Kiev. It was part of what American officials call a massive and unprecedented intelligence sharing operation with a non-NATO partner that they say has played a crucial role in Ukraine's success to date against the larger and better equipped Russian military. Now, has Ukraine had success to date against the Russian military? No. But if you happen to be in the deep state, in the corrupt global communist order whose interests are now threatened in Ukraine, then yes. And how do they describe these great Ukrainian successes, these massive Russian failures? Well, always relative to what they told us Russia's goals were, which are not in fact Russia's goals. So in the totally made up scenario, Ukraine is having great success and Russia is failing. Now, that doesn't reflect in any real world evidence that they would ever share, which is why they constantly tell you it's in relation to Russia's original goals, which they have themselves made up. The details about the air defenses and the transport plane, which have not previously been reported, underscore why two months into the war, officials assess that intelligence from U.S. spy agencies and the Pentagon has been an important factor in helping Ukraine thwart Russia's effort to seize most of the country. From the get-go, we leaned pretty heavily forward in sharing both strategic and actionable intelligence with Ukraine, a U.S. official briefed on the matter told NBC News. It's been impactful both at a tactical and strategic level. There are examples where you could tell a pretty clear story that this made a major difference. In a statement, a spokesperson for the White House National Security Council said, We are regularly providing detailed, timely intelligence to the Ukrainians on the battlefield to help them defend their country against Russian aggression and will continue to do so. NBC News is withholding some specific details that the network confirmed about the intelligence sharing at the request of U.S. military and intelligence officials who say reporting on it could help the Russians shut down important sources of information. So they're going to tell NBC News because NBC News is very trustworthy and NBC News is going to tell us that they know some things are going to be true. We just can't actually confirm it at all because that would be a threat to our own national security. But Ken Delanian is allowed to know everything, so we should trust him. And this article goes on at pretty substantial length, so I'm not going to go through it all on the podcast. Feel free to go check that out. 
on the info stream, the link is going to say Yahoo News because Yahoo News is often aggregating and then reprinting articles from other sources. But this is NBC News reporting. Now, there are a bunch of questions worth asking about this piece, not least of which is, hey, should all of this be considered an act of war by the United States? And the answer to that may well be yes. But another question is, and the one I want to focus on is, why are they telling us this two months after this war began if this happened right away? Because they're saying this happened in the first days. The U.S. provided information that led to the shooting down of a Russian troop transport plane, causing the deaths of hundreds of Russian soldiers. Should we be proud of this? Well, the people who are addicted to the central narrative and believe everything the television says, say yes, because, of course, they're on the side of Ukrainian Nazis. But for those of us who aren't bloodthirsty and completely deluded about what the Russians are doing, this sounds like an overt act of war by the United States against a nuclear armed world power who right now seems to have a pretty strong alliance with Brazil and India and China. While we have NATO, while we have Antony Blinken flying around the world to talk to Emmanuel Macron and Boris Johnson, who are all getting their orders from people like the World Economic Forum and all of these international councils. Call me crazy, but articles like this don't make me confident that these sorts of things aren't putting us in grave danger. To paraphrase Donald Rumsfeld, you go to war with the leadership you have, not the leadership you might want. So basically, we have globalists, the military industrial complex, World Economic Forum captured global leaders who all definitely won their elections, the CIA, private military contractors, private armies, mercenaries, and Ukrainian Nazis versus some of the world's most powerful militaries, and they're trying to protect a breeding ground for most of the world's most malign political corruption. It's not exactly Team America. Now, back to the Daily Mail. This is from last week, April 19th, revealed U.S. maritime surveillance plane was over Black Sea minutes before Russian flagship Moskva was hit by Ukrainian missiles. So I haven't talked about this story, I don't think, on the podcast yet. But it's really interesting because, you know, there were the reports of this Russian ship being sunk in the Black Sea, and there was a little bit of mystery around the details. This should horrify everyone, in my opinion. The U.S. Navy used its new marine surveillance aircraft to provide accurate targeting data to Ukrainian forces to sink the Russian Black Sea flagship Moskva on April 13th. Ukraine claimed it fired two Neptune missiles at the Russian warship, which was patrolling south of Odessa. Russia initially claimed the vessel, which had more than 500 crew on board, had blown up after a fire on board. Later, the Kremlin was forced to admit the vessel, named in honor of the Russian capital, had been taken out by hostile action. According to the Times, a U.S. Marine Surveillance P-8 Poseidon aircraft was tracking Moskva in the hours before it was attacked, before supplying its location to the Ukrainian military. The Boeing-made aircraft is based on the Boeing 737-800 jet, which is widely used by airlines such as Ryanair. However, instead of passengers, the Poseidon is packed with state-of-the-art surveillance equipment, which can track surface vessels and submarines at ranges of more than 100 miles. According to the Times, the P-8 took off from Italy and took up station on the Romanian Black Sea coast, where it attempted to locate the position of the Russian Black Sea fleet. Since the invasion of Ukraine, a range of NATO surveillance platforms and drones have been monitoring Russian movements from the Polish coast along the Ukrainian border and down to the Black Sea. And of course, it's the Daily Mail. So 
the article goes on forever. And if you want to read that, you can find that in the info stream. And maybe you'll end up on the Daily Mail and just looking at celebrity bikini pictures for the next two hours, because that is what the Daily Mail is apparently designed to do. So what do we have here? Okay, two examples that are extraordinarily similar, basically the same thing where the United States is doing targeting for the Ukrainian forces. And they are taking out major Russian military assets, a transport plane with a bunch of troops, hundreds of troops. That's a substantial loss and losing one of Russia's main Navy ships is pretty major as well. These are the sorts of things you might expect the Russian military to react to. And check out Rachel Maddow. Ukraine clearly believes that it can win. And so does everyone here. Ukraine clearly believes it can win. So does everyone here. Uh, That was Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin speaking today in Germany. And I think the most important thing about what he said there is that when he said, so does everyone here, uh, the everyone that he's talking about is a really big everyone. He and Secretary of State Antony Blinken convened this meeting today of countries um, to support Ukraine militarily. And this wasn't just a NATO meeting. It wasn't even just a meeting of U.S. and our traditional allies. This was dozens of countries. It was, you know, from Kenya to Japan, Tunisia, Iceland, South Korea, New Zealand. And yes, of course, now basically all of Europe and all of all, all of NATO and all of our critical allies. But this was like 40 countries. Um, plus, some that didn't even put their name on the list. Domestic news sources in Israel, for example, report today that the Israeli government attended this meeting as well, even though Israel didn't put its name on the list of participants. Local reporting suggests there may have been a few, uh, more than a few other countries, including especially Middle Eastern countries, that did that same thing as well, because they want to and they will participate in militarily supporting Ukraine even if they don't want to write their name down about it officially because they don't want to officially have to talk about it yet. It's a remarkable thing. This is a very, very large coalition, a very large, far-flung coalition convened by the United States in support of Ukraine. So Lloyd Austin and Antony Blinken are overseas meeting with representatives of what she claims are 40 nations, And they are all getting on the same page about supporting the military effort in Ukraine. Some of those countries do not want to acknowledge their participation. They didn't write their names down on the list, but oh, they were there because Lloyd Austin and Antony Blinken at the direction of the fake president have formed this coalition. And we are all supposed to be supportive of this coalition because we are supportive of the comedic actor in his effort to use new Ukrainian Nazis and mercenaries and private contractors from around the world to support the effort of the global communist order. Now, what we have in that room are not just representatives of other nations, because if those nations were formally going to involve themselves, they should announce that they are having these meetings unless they're trying to hide it from the people. And hiding the country's involvement from the people seems to be what the United States has done this entire time. Joe Biden says there will be no American troops on the ground. The American military is not involved. We are not going to close the sky. We're just going to do everything else. And we're going to pretend it's all the Ukrainians doing everything so that we don't have to take responsibility so that we don't actually have to sell our involvement in this burgeoning World War Three to the citizens of the United States. That's no longer expected anymore. Congress doesn't have to declare war. Joe Biden can lie about it and not even say we're at war. They can just do things that are overt acts of war. Now, I would love to know everybody that was in that meeting yesterday, because that is basically a roster of high level ambassadors representing the evil twin of all those nations. That's what we had yesterday. Not a NATO meeting, not a formal alliance, just these members of all these different countries coming together to support Ukraine. That is all the global evil twin, the evil twin that exists in every country. They're coming together to support the corruption in Ukraine. And it should be no surprise. And it should be no surprise that they don't 
want the rest of the world to know that they are involved in these meetings. It's really kind of incredible. And it's amazing how Rachel Maddow flips all this around and makes everyone believe that because it's in support of the comedic actor, it's all good. They're not starting World War Three. They're actually just protecting the smaller country from the bigger country. And finally, I just want to share this with you before I go. This is Ron Paul, an editorial from Ron Paul that he posted on his Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity site. It was reprinted in Zero Hedge. It is on the info stream today. T.me slash I'm your moderator. Ron Paul, the Ukraine war is a racket. War is a racket, wrote U.S. Major General Smedley Butler in 1935. He explained. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of the people. Only a small inside group knows what it is about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the very many. Out of war, a few people make huge fortunes. General Butler's observation describes the U.S.-NATO response to the Ukraine war perfectly. The propaganda continues to portray the war in Ukraine as that of an unprovoked Goliath out to decimate an innocent David unless we in the U.S. and NATO contribute massive amounts of military equipment to Ukraine to defeat Russia. As is always the case with propaganda, this version of events is manipulated to bring an emotional response to the benefit of special interests. One group of special interests profiting massively on the war is the U.S. military industrial complex. Raytheon CEO Greg Hayes recently told a meeting of shareholders that everything that's being shipped into Ukraine today, of course, is coming out of stockpiles, either at DOD or from our NATO allies. And that's all great news. Eventually, we'll have to replenish it and we will see a benefit to the business. He wasn't lying. Raytheon, along with Lockheed Martin and countless other weapons manufacturers, are enjoying a windfall they have not seen in years. The U.S. has committed more than $3 billion in military aid to Ukraine. They call it aid, but it is actually corporate welfare. Washington sending billions to arms manufacturers for weapons sent overseas. By many accounts, these shipments of weapons like the Javelin anti-tank missile jointly manufactured by Raytheon and Lockheed Martin are getting blown up as soon as they arrive in Ukraine. This doesn't bother Raytheon at all. The more weapons blown up by Russia in Ukraine, the more new orders come from the Pentagon. Former Warsaw Pact countries, now members of NATO, are in on the scam as well. They've discovered how to dispose of their 30-year-old Soviet-made weapons and receive modern replacements from the U.S. and other Western NATO countries. While many who sympathize with Ukraine are cheering, this multi-billion dollar weapons package will make little difference. As former Marine Intelligence Officer Scott Ritter said on the Ron Paul Liberty Report last week, I can say with absolute certainty that even if this aid makes it to the battlefield, it will have zero impact on the battle. And Joe Biden knows it. What we do see is that Russians are capturing modern U.S. and NATO weapons by the ton and even using them to kill more Ukrainians. What irony. Also, what kind of opportunities will be provided to terrorists with thousands of tons of deadly high tech weapons floating around Europe? Washington has admitted it has no way of tracking the weapons it is sending to Ukraine and no way to keep them out of the hands of bad guys. War is a racket, to be sure. The U.S. has been meddling in Ukraine since the end of the Cold War, going so far as overthrowing the government in 2014 and planting the seeds of war we are witnessing today. The only way out of a hole is to stop digging. Don't expect that anytime soon. War is too profitable. And I think it's pretty clear that Ron Paul is correct. Everything he's saying tracks with what I've been saying on this podcast for the last two months plus the two months of the quote unquote war and the time leading up to that. The global communists are profiting from war and death for a lost cause that they are completely misleading the American people about. And those addicted to the central narrative those child-brained Biden voters who are still somehow clueless to this regime's illegitimacy and corruption continue to applaud because they have been thoroughly propagandized and cannot imagine 
ever ceasing in their support of the comedic actor. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!